0: Good morning, church, and a happy Sabbath. Thank you, Stephen. I, you know, I've asked Stephen some time ago that he would teach me uh, a stringed instrument, and it would need to be a, a cello in my estimation, uh, but I think we'll have to wait till I'm, we're both under the tree of life until that actually is accomplished. But thank you, Stephen, for reminding us of that beautiful hymn, My Jesus I Love Thee. Well, I would bring you greetings this morning in the words of the Apostle Paul, when he said, and I notice he says this at the beginning of every one of his epistles, grace to you and peace from God, the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. My text this morning is found in one of the most wonderful passages that Paul ever wrote. And I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians, this book has sometimes been called the Alps of the New Testament because it expresses such wonderfully high and majestic themes. But let's look at what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2 and let's pick it up from verse 4 down to verse 10. But God who is rich in mercy in Christ Jesus for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God not of works lest anyone should boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them if I had asked you which word in that passage is mentioned three times can anybody tell me what word it is? I think I heard it it's grace grace and I want to illustrate this very glorious truth to you, with you this morning by reminding you of one of the strangest and most frustrating parables that Jesus ever told and if you'd like to turn back to the Gospel of Matthew and we'll look at chapter 20 Matthew chapter 20 Matthew chapter 20 and I'll put it on the screen for those of you who may not have access to the Bible a wonderful parable Matthew chapter 20 my King James Version entitles it the parable of the workers in the vineyard as we're reading it, may I ask you to think about whether you would like to give it a more suitable title. Matthew chapter 20. You know, only yesterday, dear friends, I had to attend a funeral. And while I was at the funeral, somebody said to me about this chapter, because I happened to say to them what I was going to speak about this morning. And they told me an interesting story that I just want to share with you very briefly before we read the parable. They said, and it's a true story, How recently there was a man who had abused his wife, his children, terribly for many, many years. Not only physically, but mentally and in every way. They tried to reach him, they prayed for him, but nothing seemed possible to reach him. And then it came to his deathbed. And he was angry, still angry with God and angry with his family. And they said they would like to read to him a parable. He was five minutes from dying and they turned to this parable, Matthew chapter 20. And at the end of it, he said, is that really true? And he accepted Jesus a couple of minutes before he died. Think about what there is in this story that would have had an effect, such an effect upon that man. Let's pick up the story. It's the parable of the workers in the vineyard and you'll notice it begins, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now, when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Here is a generous landowner, a law-abiding man takes some workers to to hire them in the vineyard at six o'clock in the morning. And he tells them what the arrangement is going to be concerning the pay. He would pay them a denarius a day. Now, a denarius in those days was a coin, but it was an honest day's pay for an honest day's work. A denarius a day. And he sends them into the vineyard. And he went out about the third hour, that's nine o'clock in the morning, And saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. And again, he went out about the sixth hour, that's midday, and the ninth hour, that's three o'clock in the afternoon. And about the eleventh hour at five o'clock that evening, he went out and found others standing idle. And he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all the day? And they said to him, because no one hired us. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, notice the words, I will give you, you shall receive. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, call the laborers and give them their wages. And this is where trouble starts in the parable. Because the vineyard owner said, call the ones who had been laboring for one hour first. Pay them. Don't pay those who had been working for 12 hours in the host Palestinian sun, worrying about whether they were going to have enough money that day to take home and feed the family. But he turns to those who had just been working for one hour and he says put them at the head of the line pay them first and when those came who were hired about a little the 11th hour five o'clock in the afternoon notice dear friends they each received a denarius a denarius well that was something if this landowner owner had at all been sensitive to the feelings of the workers, I'm sure knowing that there were some there who had been working all day in that hot Palestinian sun, he would have put them at the head of the line. But he didn't. He put them at the end of the line. They had to stand around and wait for the one hour workers to be paid first. But then we notice this change comes and those who had been working for only one hour received pay for a day's work. One denarius. You know, I think, dear friends, uh, knowing people as I do, there are two possible reactions. Uh, They they could have replied and said, well, this employer is a bit of a soft touch, you know, we'll come to the marketplace tomorrow at half past four in the afternoon and receive a day's pay for one hour's work. Or they could have been so grateful to this landowner for his generosity and his kindness that they would have resolved to come next day and perhaps work for free. But now things look very good for the 12 hour workers because as they watched the one hour workers getting a day's pay for one hour's work, they began to calculate and said, well, we've worked 12 hours we should get 12 denarii for 12 hours work. And of course, they also would have calculated that if they had received 12 denarii, that was equivalent to two weeks work less the Sabbaths for just 12 hours work. But then comes the bombshell and the next few verses. Remember that if they had been paid first, they may never have known because we read that when the first came, they supposed that they would have received more. And they likewise received a denarius. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner saying, these last men have worked only one hour and you've made them equal to those who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But I want you to notice the vineyard owner's reply but he answered one of them and said friend i'm doing you no wrong did you not agree with me for a denarius take what is yours almost as if they didn't want to even receive the denarius when the, the owner says take what is yours and go your way i wish to give to the last man the same as to you Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? Dear friends, how many of us this morning think the landowner was fair? Is it right for a person to be paid for a day's work with a day's pay? Is it right for a person that he should be paid in proportion to his work? Yes, at least in the kingdoms of earth. But this landowner was gracious to those who had not worked. You know, dear friends, I believe that this parable is one of the most beautiful and one of the best illustrations of all the parables in the Bible that teaches the Bible's most wonderful theme, and that's the theme of grace. Grace. How hard is it to un- for us human beings to understand grace and to really practice it in our lives and to manifest grace towards others? It's only fair, we say, to give rewards to those who are good and punishments to those who are bad because they deserve it. In the kingdoms of earth we operate on what people deserve but it is not so with God we are called to the bedside of a dying missionary he's asked for the elders to come and anoint him with oil and in our prayer we remind the Lord of all of his years of faithful service He's buried a son in the mission field. And we don't quite say it, but we are thinking, Lord, this man deserves your help. And the missionary dies. And we wonder about God. And then we're called to the bedside of a backslider. He's dying from a heart attack because of his dissolute living. He confessed his backsliding. He treated God badly for years, like that story I told at the beginning. And he just says, pray that I'll be saved. And he's healed. And we wonder more about God. You know, dear friends, it's so easy to approach the Lord and suggest to him in our prayers, we deserve to have answers to our prayers as we have asked them. But Jesus is reminding us in this parable that his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, is given to those who do not deserve it. For his kingdom is a kingdom of grace. A kingdom where the king relates to all of his subjects on the basis of his limitless, unconditional love. Offering forgiveness and the gift of his righteousness to all who would receive it by faith. I hope and pray that includes you. To show grace is to extend favour to somebody who doesn't deserve it and can never earn it. It's of interest that Jesus never used the word grace in all of his talks as recorded in the miracles. Never used the word. But have you ever noticed what John wrote about Jesus in the Gospel of John and in chapter 1, and verse 14, I read these words. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John, who had had so much to do with this wonderful Savior walking on the earth, as he looked at his life and begins to record it in the Gospels, knew that this man, though he may never have used the word grace, in everything he did, he was showing grace to those who didn't deserve it you know dear friends a favorite description of jesus is of mine is found in the book education on page 80 in every human being i look at your faces this morning in this church and there's not one of you that this does not refer to in every human being he jesus discerned infinite possibilities He saw men as he sees each one of us this morning here in church. He sees men and women as they might be, transfigured by his grace in the beauty of the Lord our God. Looking upon them with hope, he inspired hope. Looking upon them, meeting them with confidence, he inspired trust. In his presence, souls despised and fallen realized that they still were men and they longed to prove themselves worthy of his regard in his book charles swindle writes the book the grace awakening an interesting title and he tells of his last spanking it was on the occasion of his 13th birthday and he'd just broken into the sophisticated ranks of a teenager but his father was not nearly as impressed with his new status as he was. And it was a hot, muggy day, just like today. And he was lying on his bed and his dad was outside weeding the garden. Charles, come and help me weed. No, it's my birthday, remember? He admits in his book that his tone was a bit sassy with deliberate and measured lack of respect denoting his new status. But he tells us that his father broke the 100 metre record. He was inside the house like a flash, spanking him all the way to the garden. And Charles Swindle tells us that he was weeding in the garden until the moonlight was shining on the pansies. But later that evening, his dad took him to a surprise birthday party and the birthday dinner was an act of grace grace you know dear friends how easy it is to feel that you and I deserve an answer to our prayer because of our witness our sacrifice our membership in the church but then we're living by works and not by grace But if we despair of receiving God's blessings because of the things we should have done but we didn't do or if we despair of receiving God's blessings because of the don'ts that we should not have done but we did we're also casting aside God's wonderful grace. I appreciate these words that have been written. Grace is what love must be when it meets the unlovely the weak the inadequate the undeserving the despicable and God is love and it's because of his love that he's also gracious can I ask you two questions for you to think about this morning how you would answer can you have love without the need of grace and can you have grace without love. Let me, while you're thinking, your answer. Picture an ideal husband and wife, an ideal love match. Each is to the other all that the other wishes. The husband always respects his wife and always remembers anniversaries and birthdays. He always pushes the toothpaste tube from the bottom up. He's always on time for meals never leaves the bathroom in disorder, always helps with housework, always puts out the garbage, says I love you daily and means it. The wife also deserves and always rather deserves and returns the husband's love and respect, never nags, always uses her mother-in-law's recipes, tells a husband daily how wonderful he is, anticipates and fulfills the husband's every need. The love between these two is flowing freely. Can I ask you, dear friends, is there any grace here? Any grace here? There's no occasion for it. But suppose we change the scene and suppose that husband falls prey to a terrible disease, subject to deep depression and irritability, unable to care for himself, becomes loathsome in body and in spirit, and suppose that love continues as it did before, in its acceptance, its thoughtfulness, its kindness, and its love, that's grace not deserved, but freely bestowed. Grace is the face that love wears when it meets human imperfection, weakness, failure, and sin. For when God's grace, my dear brothers and sisters, meets your imperfection, your weakness, your failure, and sin, and mine God accepts us not in spite of our sins but without regard to our sins because Jesus took the punishment for all of our sins on the cross as I looked at the text the book or the chapter that I was reading from this morning I noticed in the book of Ephesians that Paul three times and this is the only writer in the whole of the Bible who does it Paul, three times in the book of Ephesians, speaks about the riches of God's grace. The riches of God's grace. I entitled our talk this morning, For God's, This Way, God's Riches at Christ's Expense. But have you ever looked at the title and seen this? Because that's what grace is. It's God's riches, the riches of his grace that's available to every one of us no matter how far we have sinned or how far we have moved away from God. This statement from Steps to Christ. Think about what it's saying. If you give yourself to him, have you done that? If you give yourself to him and accept him as your savior, then sinful as your life may have been, for his sake you are accounted righteous. And then words that I I, I find it hard to understand and believe, but with this glorious transaction of grace, it is written, Christ's character stands in place of your character, and you are accepted before God Just as if you had not sinned. Oh, my friends, let those words sink deep into your heart this morning. There's not one of us who can leave this church this Sabbath morning at the beginning of this new year and not feel that experience that is described there. We can go from this church as though we had never sinned in our lives. On the condition, if you give yourself to him, Christ's character stands in place of yours. Oh my dear friends this is marvel of marvels wonder of wonders we should never tire of singing and praying and thanking God for the grace that is extended to every one of us before I close this morning dear friends I want to leave you with just three things three facts three glorious facts about God's grace what are they? god's promise of grace first of all is all sufficient and is made perfect in weakness i'm so glad the last part is there and is that based upon scripture ah yes my friends it is if you go in your bibles to the book of corinthians 2 corinthians chapter 12 and you'll remember this experience where the apostle paul is fearing that he's become he could become so proud because after all he's been receiving visions now we don't often think about Paul receiving visions many visions he doesn't mention them so often except on one one or two occasions but he feared that because he was receiving and chosen by God to receive visions that he might become proud of that fact and so what does Paul do in response You remember how he describes it in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me, and I be exalted above measure. Bible scholars have wondered what that thorn in the flesh was. But there's a certain amount of good evidence to suggest that one of the things it could have been was that Saul had bad eyesight. He tells us on one occasion at the end of one of his epistles, that see what large letters I have written. Not referring to the length of the letter, but the size of the the letters that he's written in the Greek. Why? Because he had difficulty seeing. And why should the Apostle Paul have difficulty in seeing, except on that day he was on the Damascus road and he saw the glory of the risen Christ. Did that burn its way into his eyes that he was continually reminded for the rest of his life that he'd seen the Lord? I don't know. Except that it tells us in the next verse concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said, God's response to his prayers, my grace is sufficient for you and my strength is made perfect in your weakness your weakness because God's grace is bestowed dear friends on the undeserving the weak the imperfect the unlovely if you and I do not recognize our weakness our unloveliness of character our failure and our sin we will never be recipients of God's grace because it's extended to those who don't deserve it there is only one thing my friends that blocks our reception of God's grace and that is our refusal to acknowledge that we need it continually those who trust in their own righteousness who rely on their good works their leadership in the church their generosity to the church Those who rely on their Sabbath keeping, their tithe paying, their moral uprightness, their years of service can never receive his grace if they're relying on their works to make them deserve God's help. They can never receive his grace. I'm reminded of that parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 18. And in Luke 18, he tells in verse 9 the reason why he tells this parable. And listen to what Jesus said. And he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Notice to whom Jesus was telling this story? Those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and that they despised others. And that's the, always the result from those who trust in their own righteousness. We despise those who are not as righteous as we are. And what was the parable that Jesus told that day? The story of two men who came into the church, perhaps on a Sabbath, to pray. And you remember, it says in verse 10, one was a Pharisee and the other one was a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and prayed with himself, that's interesting, saying, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners unjust adulterers or even as this tax collector over in the corner who is praying I fast twice a week I give tithes of all that I possess and the tax collector standing far off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying God be merciful to me a sinner and what did Jesus say to the end of that parable I tell you, this man went back to his house that day justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. An important story. But my dear friends, God's grace is also made available to us because it's bestowed upon us super abundantly super abundantly i'm sure there is one text that should come to your mind when i put that on the screen that is as paul expressed it in the book of romans chapter 5 and verse 20 where sin abounded now i'm going to ask you can you tell me can you say with me how that text ends where sin abounded grace did much more abound and that's why I put on the screen that God's grace is bestowed upon us super abundantly even where grace where where sin abounds in our lives grace this wonderful grace abounds far more abundantly far more abundantly where sin overflows grace floods in where sin is colossal grace is super colossal where sin abounds grace super abounds and there's no better illustration, and I'm going to take a little time though, it's, I know it's hot, of this wonderful truth. But because it is a wonderful truth and because it's a truth we all need to remind ourselves of constantly, that where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. I just would remind you of the story of David. Dear friends, we know the story of David. We know of his adultery his murder, his lying. But then he prayed the prayer that is recorded in Psalm 51. Read it sometime, my friends. Every sinner should at least read Psalm 51 often. Read it and look at the first verse to see why David or when David prayed this prayer. But it's to me, it's an illustration of that text in Romans where grace abounds, much more, where sin abounds, grace abounds, much more. And why, why do I say this? And how does David illustrate this truth in such a marvelous way? For this question to be asked, how did God regard David after his murder and adultery and his lying? There's the most wonderful text in the Old Testament in answer to that prayer and I would ask you to look at this text and if you've never underlined it in your Bible and you're an underliner this should be underlined it's 1st Kings chapter 14 and we read verses 7 and 8 1st Kings chapter 14 and verses 7 and 8 perhaps let me give you the background of this the wife of the king came And was concerned about the fact that his their son was dying and in verse 2 it says Jeroboam the king said to his wife please arise and disguise yourself that they may not recognize you as the wife of the king Jeroboam and go to Shiloh to the prophet Ahijah who told me that I would be king over this people take with you ten loaves and some cakes and a jar of honey and go to him he will tell you what will become of the child And Jeroboam's wife did so. She arose and went to Shiloh, came to the house of Ahijah, but Ahijah could not see, for his eyes were glazed by reason of his age. And now the Lord said to Ahijah, here's the wife of Jeroboam coming to ask you something about her son, for he is sick. Thus and thus you shall say to her, for it will be when she comes in that she will pretend to be another woman. Get the story here. And so it was when Ahijah heard the sound of her footsteps as she came through the door, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another person? For I have been sent to you with bad news. Go and tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord God of Israel. Because I exalted you from among the people and made you ruler over my people Israel and I tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you and now follows these words and please notice them. David is now dead and buried. Jeroboam has taken his place after Solomon. Think of it. You have not been as my servant David who kept my commandments and who followed me with all his heart to do only what was right in my eyes dear friends I don't know about you but I am amazed by that verse was God suffering from dementia had he forgotten what David did to say that David kept all of God's commandments when he broke at least three of them To say that David follows the Lord, followed the Lord with all of his heart when if you know anything about the life of David he didn't follow the Lord with all of his heart throughout his life. To say that did that only in his life what was right. Lord what about Bathsheba and Uriah? But God could say that about David my friends. As he can say it about you and me when we have prayed that prayer of forgiveness because of God's grace he looked at David clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Jesus kept all of God's commandments Jesus followed the Lord with all of his heart throughout his life and Jesus did only what was right in God's sight my friends when you and I come as sinners into the presence of this wonderful God of grace those words can be said about you we sang in that hymn earlier today grace, grace God's grace grace that will pardon and cleanse within, grace, grace God's grace grace that is greater than all of our sin." But I would not be faithful to the Gospel, dear friends, if I didn't remind you of the third great fact of God's grace. And that is that God's grace calls us to live a holy, obedient life. How easy it is for many Christians to misunderstand this, to even come to the Sabbath commandment and say we don't have to keep the Sabbath, we don't have to keep the commandments because of God's grace. And yet they fail to realize, dear friends, what the Paul wrote in the book of Romans, two verses after he had written, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Two verses after that he says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? No. No, my friends. Because grace calls you and me to live a holy, obedient life. And where do I find that in Scripture? As in my, the text I would leave with you this morning is in that little book of Titus in the New Testament, chapter two, uh, chapter 2 and verse 11. I read this. Listen to the words. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us. Notice that grace teaches you and me that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. God calls us to live Good works, because God creates that desire in our hearts. Oh, my friends, I close this morning with commending to you this grace, a grace that is all-sufficient, but is made perfect in weakness, a grace that is bestowed on every one of us superabundantly. a grace that calls you and me to live a holy, obedient life. I can close this morning with no better words than the words Paul closed when he was just saying goodbye to the elders in Ephesus. And they knew they would never see Paul again. And this was his final farewell. And I want you to listen to how he prayed. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 32, I read these words. And so now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. I commend you to that hope this morning.